The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay. Well, as we get started this evening, before I get into uh, some of the more fun items, I thought I would give you a little report on this last trip, especially since everybody got a little bit of a surprise on Sunday morning when they got to church and you had to decide if it was live or Memorex. The, uh, The really fun thing was when I was standing with my back to the door, so I just walked in the back door at Baraka on Sunday morning, and Katie Baker's mother walked in behind me, and she had just got through talking to Katie because it was snowed up here and they weren't coming to church. So her mouth just dropped open. I said, is it live or is it Memorax? <laughs> well, it's just a hologram. But it was obviously the Lord's will for a number of things that happened last week. And just interesting sometimes to, to realize when things don't go the way we plan or don't go the way we would we have... Uh, uh, intended them to do that the Lord has other other plans. For example, on this trip, I was supposed to have uh, flown down and flown back last Saturday and then Sunday afternoon flown back down to Dallas for this pre-trip conference. And I was meeting Gene Brown there who at the last minute had had to go to Kansas uh, or go up to Missouri to check on his farm and his wife was with him. She was going to drive him back to Dallas and drop him off. He had no idea how he was going to get to Houston. So when it turned out that I didn't go, I borrowed a car, from, was loaned a car from a mutual friend, drove it to Dallas, and then Gene drove it back, so that got Gene home. But on the way down from Missouri, Gene had a head-on collision on the interstate with a sofa that somebody had lost on the interstate, totaled his car, just totaled his car, and uh, he was, uh, they weren't hurt, or his wife broke her arm, but other than that, they weren't hurt, and they came out fine, and they... Uh, the record driver that came to pick him up was a, was a believer, because Gene just about witnesses to anybody who comes into his periphery, and uh, which is always fun to see. And uh, so this guy invited Gene to church, and Gene figured he needed to go to this guy's church, but he didn't really know why. So he goes to church, and they're into praise and worship, and they're getting a new praise and worship leader, and that almost made Gene bilious. And uh, he went to. So he went to the Sunday school class, and they're sitting there in the Sunday school class, and everybody's just sort of, of uh, sharing different things. And, and uh, so it came to Gene, and he was the visitor, so everybody wanted to know his story. So he told about the wreck and that the fact that he couldn't understand why this uh, highway patrol officer in Oklahoma gave him a ticket for reckless driving when there wasn't a whole lot he could do to avoid this sofa that was sitting in the middle of the interstate. And so the guy sitting across from him said, well, you come to my office tomorrow. And Gene just kind of looked at him and said, well, why should I do that? The guy said, well, I'm the assistant district attorney. (laughs) And I'm going to tear that ticket out. So Gene went to the assistant district attorney's office the next morning. And while he's sitting there, the district attorney's asking him some questions and, uh, you know, they're getting to know each other. Where are you going? And he told them he was going down to Dallas for a pre-trib rapture conference. And the guy said, really? Turns out the assistant district attorney used to go to a doctrinal church on the other side of Oklahoma. And since he's been in this little town of Miami, Oklahoma, he has just had been in a desert for doctrine. So Gene gave him a box of tapes he had in his van. And uh, we will be getting tape orders from the assistant district attorney in Miami, Oklahoma. So Gene and Phyllis finally made it in on a Monday night and dropped me off. And the next morning we're driving uh, Claude's car around and it's rainy. And all of a sudden the windshield wipers went bad. So, well, it's just another thing. I wonder what the Lord's got in mind for us now. So we drove around in Irving and we finally found a little auto parts store. So we drove into the auto parts store and I can't remember the guy's name now. A little Mexican kid comes out to replace the windshield wipers. But when he went back in, he was saved. <laughs> so we had uh, 
quite quite the adventure on that. And before that, let me see. I went to Houston, and uh, it's been so much has happened. It's like I can't believe it. it's just been a week. But last Thursday, my mother had surgery, and she's doing fine. Everything was fine. And on Friday night and Saturday, I spoke at uh, uh, a church down there, Community of Faith Baptist Church, and that went really well, and went uh, went quite well. And it was on uh, how to study the Bible. And that went well, and then when I turned out I wasn't coming back here because of the tooth problem, then one of uh, my former students who was there, who's a pastor, said, well, you think you're not doing anything tomorrow, you're coming over to my church to uh, to handle the first the uh, Sunday morning service. So I did that at, a, at, a, at his church, and then last night I was at another church in West Dallas, deep in the hood. And that went quite well. There were two churches that got together, and I did. Uh, I talked on Islam, Israel, and imminency. See, I'm learning to preach with alliteration now. <laughs> and you will get some of that um, this week. But the pre-trib conference was excellent. Got a lot of good information about uh, a number of different things. And one of the things that I learned that I did not know was that one of the most vicious anti-Semitic Arabs in the history of Jerusalem was the Mufti of Jerusalem from about 1925 to 1945, somewhere in there. And he was raising an Arab division to fight with the Nazis and to so they could kill all the Jews they could. I mean, this guy was just like the ultimate rabid anti-Semite. And his last name was Al-Husseini has a famous nephew who changed his name, I did not know this, who changed his name so that he would not be associated with his, with his uncle. His nephew's Arafat. So that gives a big clue as to what Yasser Arafat is like. He is just one of the, he's as bad if not worse a terrorist than Osama bin Laden. And it's going to be fascinating to watch some of the things that are going, going on right now. I wanted to, before we get started, I wanted to read to you. I got this in email. This is a letter from a U.S. Marine Corps captain who's operating in Afghanistan. And the date on this is November 11th, so months gone by. But it gives us a pretty good idea of what's going on over there. Not the kind of idea that we're going to pick up from NBC, CNN, or CBS, or ABC. So I want to read this to you just to give you a little insight into what our guys are facing over there and what, what, these, what the Afghanistan situation is like. He says he's just outside of Abgash in the northwest panhandle of Afghanistan between Tajikistan and Pakistan. He says, bizarre, it's freezing here. I'm sitting on hard, cold dirt between rocks and shrubs at the base of the Hindu Kush mountains and Pay attention to that because if we get there tonight in Daniel, we're going to be talking about Alexander the Great crossing the Hindu Kush. Uh, at the base of the Hindu Kush mountains along the Doryoy Pamir River, watching a hole that leads to a tunnel that leads to a cave. Stake out, my friend, and no pizza delivery for thousands of miles. It gets a little gory in here, so just get, get ready. I also glance at the area around me every 10 to 15 seconds to avoid another scorpion sting. I've actually given up battling the chiggers, ants, and fleas, but those blasted scorpions give a jolt like a cattle prod. Hurts bad. The antidote tastes like transmission fluid. But God bless the Marine Corps for the five vials of it in my pack. One truth the Taliban cannot escape is that, believe it or not, they're human beings, which means they have to eat food and drink water. That requires couriers, and that's where an old bounty hunter like me comes in handy. I track the couriers, locate the tunnel entrances and storage facilities, type the info into the handheld, shoot the coordinates up to the satellite link that tells the air commanders where to drop the hardware. It's a whole new kind of soldier, isn't it? We bash some heads for a while, then I track and record the new movement. It's all about intelligence. We haven't even brought in the snipers yet. These scurrying rats have no idea what they're in for. We are but days away from cutting off supply lines and allowing the eradication to begin. I dream of bin Laden waking up to find me standing over him with my boot on his throat 
as I spit a bloody ear into his face and plunge my nickel-plated bowie knife through his frontal lobe. But you know me, I'm a romantic. I've said it before and I'll say it again. This country blows, man. It's not even a country. There are no roads. There's no infrastructure. There's no government. This is an inhospitable rock pit hole ruled by 11th century warring tribes. There are no jobs here like we know jobs. Afghanistan offers two ways for a man to support his family. Join the opium trade or join the army. That's it. Those are your options. Oh, I forgot, you can also live in a refugee camp and eat plum sweetened crushed beetle paste and be sick all the time if that's your idea of a party. But the smell alone of those tent cities of the walking dead is enough to hurl you into the poppy fields to cheerfully scrape bulbs for 18 hours a day. And let me tell you something else. I've been living with these Tajiks and Uzbeks and Turkmen and even a couple of Pushtuns for over a month, well, for over a month and a half now, and this much I can say for sure. These guys, all of them are Huns, actual living Huns. They live to fight. It's what they do. It's all they do. They have no respect for anything, not for their families or for each other or for themselves. They claw at one another as a way of life. They play polo with dead calves and force their five-year-old sons into human cockfights to defend the family honor. Huns roaming packs of savage, heartless beasts who feed on each other's barbarism, cavemen with AK-47s. Then again, maybe I'm just cranky. I'm freezing my expletive deleted off on this <laughs> stupid hill because my lap warmer is running out of juice and I can't recharge it until the sun comes up in a few hours. Oh yeah, you like to write letters, right? Do me a favor, write a letter to CNN and tell Judy and Bernie and that awful, sneering, pompous, expletive deleted... Aaron Brown to stop calling the Taliban smart. They are not smart. I suggest CNN invest in a dictionary because the word they are looking for is cunning. The Taliban are cunning like jackals and hyenas and wolverines. They are sneaky and ruthless and when confronted, cowardly. They are hateful, malevolent, cowardly parasites who create nothing and destroy everything else. They've spent their entire lives reading only one book, and not a very good one, as books go. Incidentally, the number one bestseller in Arab countries is Hitler's Mein Kampf. Still the number one hit parade for the anti-Semite. He goes on to say, and they consider hygiene and indoor plumbing to be products of the devil. <laughs> They're still trying to figure out how to work a big lighter. Talking to a Taliban warrior about improving his quality of life is like trying to teach an ape how to hold a pen. Eventually, he just gets frustrated and sticks you in the eye with it. <laughs> okay, enough. Sun will be up soon, so I have to get back to my hole. Covering my tracks in the snow takes a lot of practice, but I'm getting good at it. Please tell my fellow Americans to turn off their TV sets and move on with their lives. The storyline you're getting from CNN is utter um, balderdash. And designed not to deliver truth, but rather to keep you glued to the screen through the commercials. We've got this one under control. The worst thing you guys can do right now is sit around analyzing what we're doing over here because you have no idea what we're doing, and really you don't want to know. We are your military, and we are doing what you sent us here to do. You want to help by stocks in America. We have to realize, yes. Do I hear an amen? amen. Yeah. You know, we have to realize that we're up against an enemy. And uh, Sunday morning, I'm going to start getting into some serious material on Islam in preparation for what you're going to get on Wednesday nights while I'm gone. And when I'm gone, you know, too often that's an opportunity. Some people think, well, pastor's not here, so I'll go. But when I'm gone, especially when I have videos like this, it's because it's a great opportunity to do something and to expose everybody to some important information that we just don't normally have time for if I'm here teaching doctrine. And so uh, we're going to have these tapes. They're an hour and a half long from Avi Lipkin, who's a member of the Israeli Defense League, which is not to be confused with those idiots that got arrested in California last night, the Jewish Defense League. The Israeli Defense League is basically the armed forces in Israel. And he has some fascinating information about what's going on in the Middle East, and he has been predicting terrorist attacks in America for a number of years, and uh, you need to be here for that. But these people, if we think that we can negotiate with the Muslims, if we think that we can 
somehow appeal to some common ground, we can't. There is no common ground with the uh, radical Islamic fundamentalists. And anybody who thinks that Islam is a peaceful religion, has never read the Quran, and has just bought the lies that are promulgated by the uh, self-deceived media in the United States. The last thing in the world that, the, that Islam is, it never has been a peaceful religion. It has all, it's been spread by the sword ever since the days of Muhammad. And in fact, in the Quran it says that if you can't convince someone to become a Muslim any other way, then uh, do it at sword point. So it's always been there. And it's interesting that in this war that we're engaged in right now, it really seems to be just moving things a step closer towards the kind of scenario one might expect during the tribulation. And I personally, looking at my opinion right now, of course, I'm, not, I'm just sort of opining here, is that this very well could be something that really stifles the power of, the, uh, of Islam for a while. I mean, it may take us a while and it may be a bloody, bloody affair, but I don't see a situation where the Antichrist can rise to power in a ten-nation Western confederacy when you've got a major power block like Islam anywhere. So unless uh, the Lord's going to tarry another 500 years, I expect that we may see um, in the course of the next few years a real defeat of radical Islam, and I hope so. But the fighting, everything that's going on over there centers on Jerusalem. The rationale, and I'll read from it on Sunday morning, the rationale from the uh, fatwa that was issued by Osama bin Laden and others in 1998 against the United States specifically states that the reason for the fatwa and the jihad that they're executing now is to free the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Israel is at the center of this entire thing, and though um, the government tried to avoid that, the last few weeks have demonstrated that they can't. And so all of this plays a part. Israel is the focal point of history as we prepare for the final seven years of the tribulation, before uh, which is going to focus on Israel. So that's just another reason it looks like it may not be long, but you never know. It could be 20, 30, 40, 100 years, but it sure seems like the Lord's moving the pieces on the chess table. And all of this is taking place in an area that is covered in Daniel, in our study in Daniel chapter 7. So before we open our Bibles, let's have a word of prayer, a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then we'll begin our study. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we live in a nation where we continue to have freedom. And because we have freedom, there are many in this world who are extremely jealous and angry and bitter towards the United States because we are successful, because we have made something of ourselves, and because we are a testimony of your grace. And for that reason, we are their enemy and we are also the enemy of Satan. And Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation despite the fact that we have had these anthrax attacks and the horrific attacks in the World Trade Center, we know that your wall of fire continues to protect us because we continuously hear of uh, uh, different ways in which these terrorists have tried to continue to assault this country and those uh, rings have been broken up before they could do anything. And we can only attribute that to your grace. And we thank you for your grace that we live in this country. We have the prosperity that we do have and we have the freedoms that we have and above all that we can study your word. Father, we pray as believers we would realize this is our priority, to study your word, to learn how to think as you think, to learn how to look at history, the, even the events going on around us from your perspective. And the only way to do that is to learn your word and to learn how you have evaluated history in the past and to understand your plan and purposes in human history. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Daniel, we pray that you would encourage us with the things we're studying, that we may see how these historical events teach eternal spiritual truths. May we be challenged by them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
We continue our study of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. And we have been looking at the four beasts that rise up out of the sea and this fantastic vision that Daniel has. Daniel chapter 7, and the vision here in Daniel 7 is one of the most important and crucial prophecies for unlocking later prophecies, understanding Zechariah, understanding the revelation that Jesus Christ gives to John from Revelation chapter 4 through the end of Revelation, all build on symbols and events that are revealed first in Daniel 7. We read in Daniel 7, 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And we looked at those two those two symbols, the four winds of heaven and the great sea, and we saw the great sea represents the mass of fallen humanity. It is shapeless, it is easily shaped by external forces, and it is unstable. And it is the, the uh, upon fallen humanity that Satan works his uh, will trying to bring about his plan for mankind. And the four winds of heaven, winds are a picture of the of angelic forces on human history. And these are predominantly demonic forces moving human history in the direction of the establishment of the kingdom of man. And it is during the kingdom of man that Satan will function uh, ultimately through his man, the Antichrist. And we get quite an introduction to the Antichrist before we finish Daniel 7. Four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another, and these four beasts are uh, just another representation of the kingdoms that we saw in Daniel chapter 2. The first was like a lion, and that represents the kingdom of Babylon, and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it, and we saw that that was a picture of the kingdom of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, that when the wings were plucked, that's when Nebuchadnezzar lost his sanity, spent seven years like an animal eating the grass, living outdoors, and then his sanity was restored to him, and he trusted the Lord as his Savior. And it's at that point that he becomes transformed from a beast, and a beast is a picture of what happens to people when they operate on the sin nature. And it is only when he is regenerate, when he puts his faith alone in Christ alone, that he is able to become truly what man, as man, what mankind as mankind was intended to be. He has true humanity, and only after regeneration. The principle there is that it's only when we're regenerate that we are as God intended us to be. When God created Adam in the garden, Adam was created trichotomous, body, soul, and spirit. But because of spiritual death, because of the fall, we are all born spiritually dead, just body and soul. It is only when we recover a human spirit at salvation that we can be truly human. Other than that, we operate on the sin nature, and the picture of the human being operating on the sin nature is that he is bestial. Point five, uh, verse 5, And behold, another beast a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And there we saw that the bear, rep- the bear is uh, also a carnivore. The bear is uh, not as speedy, not as fast, and not as strong as the lion, but a bear is agile and strong. And this is a picture of the um, kingdom of Media Persia. Then verse 6, After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, the first kingdom, the beast coming up from the sea, is explained in 717 as four kingdoms. The first kingdom is Babylon, and that's comparable to the head of gold. Here is a map of the Babylonian Empire 
as it existed. They had extended their coverage into Egypt. Here you can see, if you can see the arrow, as far west as Egypt. And they didn't quite conquer all of uh, Turkey, but the Medes and the Persians did because this eastern half of Turkey here was the kingdom of Lydia. And uh, the Medes and the Persians under Cyrus will conquer the Lydians. So this gives you an idea of the size. This is uh, the Mediterranean out here, of course, in the island of Cyprus. It's this area along the coast that represents Israel. Uh, here is Babylon here. And um, modern Baghdad is just north up in generally this area. So this area here is uh, modern Iraq. And then the area to the east is modern Iran. So this gives you an idea of the extent of the Babylonian or, uh, or Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire. That was the head of gold represented by Nebuchadnezzar. And then the next kingdom is represented by the bear raised up on one side. It's a lopsided bear. And the lopsided bear represents the one side being stronger than the other, and that's the strength of the Persians. And the Medes were uh, less strong. The three ribs we saw represented three different conquests. The uh, uh, Medes, the kingdom of Lydia, and the uh, Chaldeans. And you can relate that with chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. And we'll go through a chart that's going to correlate all of these things eventually. Where we read, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Liberals want to make this just Media. And that way they get away from all of the uh, implications of uh, predictive prophecy. But the text itself identifies who these kingdoms are. Then verse... um, Our verse 5 represents the bear, and we'll just move on through these charts. We saw those last time. Now, here is where we're going to, we stopped last time, looking at the development of the history of Persia, and then the next kingdom, which will be the kingdom of Greece. Now, unfortunately, some of you have never really developed tremendous appreciation for history, and this is a bad night for you. Hopefully, you will... In your development of uh, your Christian life, you'll develop an appreciation for history because history is the outworking of God's plan, and there are some fantastic lessons to learn. As far as the kings of Persia are concerned, this is the Achaemenid dynasty. That's spelled A-C-H. Well, let me put it here on the, on the overhead. A-C-H-A-E. M-E-N-I-D, M-E-N-I-D. That was the family name, just like um, just like Windsor is the family name for the royal family in England right now. The Achaemenid dynasty. And the first major ruler was Cyrus I, and he was followed by his son, uh, Cyrus uh, the, uh, he was followed by his son Cambyses. I left Cambyses the first author here, who married uh, Mandane, the daughter of Astyages of Media. And their son was Cyrus II, who became known as Cyrus the Great. He was the king of Anshan, which is the even more ancient name of Persia. His son is Cambyses II, who conquered Egypt. But Cambyses was also a vindictive man. And he was afraid that his uh, brother was uh, fomenting a conspiracy against him, so he killed his brother. His brother's name was Smerdis. And while Cambyses was off conquering Egypt, after he conquered Egypt, he was assassinated. And there was a uh, man that took the uh, took over the kingdom, and he claimed to be Smerdis, the brother that had been killed. But he he's called by historians pseudo Smerdis. His name was Gautama, and he was a usurper from 522 to 521. He's followed by Darius I, who is also known in history as Darius Hystaspes or Darius the Great. He is the, uh, a descendant of the younger brother of Cyrus I. So Cyrus I was his great-great uncle. 
Now, he is one of the greatest, and probably the Persian Empire revolves around the strength of the leadership of Cyrus II and Darius I. This is not the Darius that is in Daniel. He is followed by Xerxes I, who is also known as Ahasuerus, and he is, that's the Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. Esther is the story of Jews in captivity during this time uh, under the, those that did not return to the land just yet. And he eventually marries Esther and takes her as one of his wives. He is also operative during the, during the time of the prophets Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. He is followed by... Uh, Artaxerxes II, who is also known in history as Artaxerxes Longimanus, and he is mentioned in Ezra 7, 1 through 8, and this is the Artaxerxes mentioned in Nehemiah 2, 1, the Artaxerxes who grants the decree for the Jews to go back, for Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the fortifications around Nehemiah. Now, that's important. This is the Artaxerxes, and that's the decree that kicks off the, the beginning point of Daniel's 70 weeks. The, the prophecy in Daniel 9 is that the Jews will go back into the land, and from the time they go back into the land to rebuild Jerusalem, Plaza and Moat. Plaza relates to the place of commercial activity. The Moat is the place of defensive works. And uh, from, the, from the issue of that decree, which was given in 444 B.C., until the cutting off of Messiah would be 69 weeks or 483 years or 173,880 days. And that works out from the first of Nisan 444 B.C. when the decree was given up to Jesus Christ the day he entered into Jerusalem on what is known as Palm Sunday was exactly 173,880 days. So we've covered that in the past, but that is that Artaxerxes. And he's followed by Xerxes the second, Darius the second, and Artaxerxes, uh, that should be Artaxerxes the third. Excuse me, the, the one earlier is Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes Longamanus, that's a typo, that should be Artaxerxes the first. This is Artaxerxes the second in 404 to 359, and then Artaxerxes the third, from 359 to 338, followed by Arces, 338 to 335, Darius III, 335 to 331, and he is the last king. Now, we'll talk about him because he has a problem with Alexander. Now, this gives you the framework of the key leaders and the history of, of um, the Medo-Persian Empire or just the Persian Empire. And in order to understand the fall and the collapse of the bear, the lopsided bear, we have to understand something that's going on in Greece at the time because they will be defeated by the Greeks. And we have to remember that in America we have short memories, but with most countries in history they have long memories. And if they are defeated in battle by somebody in uh, one century, then that, those people execute revenge maybe 150 or 200 years later. And this is a principle that is still valid, in, in, especially in the Arab world. And apparently the Arabs are still uh, angry at the West. And, of course, America wasn't even in existence during the Crusades. But, of course, they, whoever said that, that vengeance was logical. And they want to uh, blame the U.S. For, for the Crusades. And, you know, some, at some point you're going to get involved in a conversation with somebody and they're going to say, well, you know, Religion just start all the horrible wars. I had that conversation, in fact, this last week. And so uh, we can't blame the Muslims because they are doing this. Look at what we did in the Crusades. And what the point that you have to make in that discussion is that when, at that time in history, Christianity had become illegitimately politicized. It was not a biblical expression of Christianity, number one. And the Crusades were an unholy application of the Scriptures. They were a wrong application, a misapplication of the Scriptures, and it produced something unholy. It was not right and not biblical. But see, what the, what the Arabs are doing today is 
directly according to the Quran. It is according to their scriptures. Their jihad is exactly what they're told to do, whereas the Crusades were wrong. They violated Christianity, and that's an important point to make to people because so often they've been brought up in a humanistic society that wants to blame Christianity for the Crusades. And Christianity, true biblical Christianity, had nothing to do with the Crusades. Well, the problems between Persia and Greece started back with Darius I, Darius Hystaspes, uh, between 521 and 486. This is roughly 20 to 40 years after the death of Daniel. And what happened during that time is Darius Hystaspes had invaded across... Uh, I'm going to move ahead a little bit and see if I can get to a map. Darius Estaspes, here we go. Darius Estaspes had invaded uh, across Turkey. See, this, is, this map here represents a little earlier period. The green shaded is the um, kingdom of the Medes. Here's the Persian Gulf down here. It's a little skewed. Here's the Caspian Sea up here. This area over here is modern Afghanistan. Here's the Black Sea, and here's what is modern Turkey. And... The kingdom of Lydia had been defeated by uh, Cyrus I, but yet, so that all of this area we now know as Turkey or Asia Minor was uh, under the domination of the Persian Empire. But see, the Greeks had come across the Aegean here, and they had colonies all along the coast of uh, Asia Minor. And they began to revolt against the Persian overlords, and uh, Darius didn't care for that a whole lot, so he got mad at them, and he discovered that most of these colonists had come across from Athens, which is located right down here. So he decided he needed to teach the Athenians a lesson, so he uh, developed a large army and a tremendous fleet, and he sent his navy across the Aegean in order to attack um, Athens, and he landed his army up at a place called Marathon, and he was going to use them to draw out the Athenian army so that the navy could go in and hit Athens from the rear. So he knew he could he didn't have much of a chance of taking Athens by siege, so he decided to use this draw play. The trouble was that the uh, Greeks pulled off a pretty good running campaign, and they had a messenger that ran from uh, Marathon to, uh, uh, or from Athens to Marathon, in order to warn the army there. So after they defeated the army, they pulled out and did a forced march back to Athens. And when the navy hit, they were already back in Athens and defeated the uh, Persian navy. So Darius was forced to pull back, and his successor was uh, Xerxes. And Xerxes was a man, Xerxes I, was a man who was primarily interested in architecture. He's well known because he built a famous city in the ancient world called Persopolis. But unfortunately, he was goaded in by the hawks in his administration to try to conquer the Greeks again. So he organized an army of 180,000, and he took them across the Hellespont, which is right up here, took them across into uh, from Asia. See, it's at this point that you move from Asia into Europe when you cross the um, uh, Hellespont there. And they came into this area here is Thrace. This area here is Macedon. And they started moving across into Greece and then down the uh, peninsula of Greece to destroy the armies of Athens and then the armies of Sparta. And they had a, an army of 180,000 that were he headed that way. So he, um, when he got down here, the, the um, Greek army decided that they needed to hold him off for a while. And there was a tight pass in the mountains here that they had to come through at a place where they had some famous hot springs called Thermopylae. And that's one of the most famous battles in the ancient world. And so they sent a, a uh, small contingent of Spartans, some 300 Spartans. And these were, the Spartans were the sort of the special ops teams of the, uh, of, the, of the Greek world. 
And they held off this army of 180,000. The problem was they had this tight gorge they had to go through, and so they could only put a few men at a time up in the front, and they were they had to go through this uh, uh, contingent of Spartans who held them off until a traitor, a Greek traitor, told uh, Xerxes of a way around uh, the pass. And so he sent a flanking movement around the pass and hit the Spartans from the rear and wiped them out. It's one of the most famous battles in history and is, is often compared to, to the Battle of the Alamo because it did do the necessary job, and that was to buy time for the Greek army that was down in the south. And it also cost Xerxes much, uh, much more than he uh, wanted many more lives than he wanted to lose. He got down to Athens and then he sent his navy around um, this peninsula here, sent his navy around up into this area just south of Athens to Salamis. The Athenians were evacuating their city and trying to leave by sea and the Persian navy was about to close them off and Xerxes sent 200 ships southward in order to cut off the only means of escape for the Greeks and kept his main force of 600 ships in the, in the, um, in the north area just up in this bay over here. But at that point, he could have won. He had complete control of the Greek peninsula. He was in control of the situation. And as the text says, he's the bear that's devouring much flesh. But at this point... Xerxes begins to demonstrate the weakness that eventually comes out in, in every commander in the kingdom of man. There's always a rise and a fall, and these great commanders fall apart when they start operating on their mental attitude sins. So the Greeks were at this point at the mercy of Xerxes, but Xerxes became impatient. And even though he had the opportunity at this point to uh, destroy Greece, he began to demonstrate this arrogance, and rather than waiting for the Greek fleet and the Athenians to be just starved out by having them hold up in Athens, he uh, sent this Greek navy around for a flanking movement, and they got ambushed at Salamis, and 200 Persian ships were sunk, one of the great navy battles of all time. He still could have won, but in arrogance he blamed all of his naval commanders, and uh, like every good arrogant dictator, he just brought them all out and had them shot. So that shows you that, um, that when arrogance takes over and emotion takes over and you quit thinking, you start making bad decisions. And this is really the beginning of the end for Persia because they have uh, invaded Greece and now they've got all the Greeks mad at him. And it's going to take 150 years before Alexander comes back, but Alexander is going to come back 150 years later in order to uh, wreak vengeance upon the, um, upon the Persians. So that gives the background for how the Persians began to fall and the beginnings of the wars between the Greeks and the Persians. Now, let me back up a little bit in terms of these slides, and we'll go back to about here. Daniel 7. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, another beast, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. Now, this is an odd-looking creature, a flying leopard. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, the, the picture of the leopard, the reason the leopard is chosen is because of its speed. Because of its speed. It took 11 years for Alexander the Great to conquer the known world. From the time he came out of Macedon and started uniting the, uh, and conquering in the Greek city-states until he was on the banks of the Indus River in what is really now Pakistan, but up until uh, just after World War II, when they split it off from India because the Pakistanis were Muslim, the Indians were Hindu, and they never could get along. They finally split it off and set Pakistan apart as a separate country. But that's really as far as Alexander got, was just to the Indus River, which is approximately the border between Pakistan and India. And he did that in 11 years, so he's moving fast like a leopard, 
And then he has on his back four wings. And those four wings are going to represent the four major battles that uh, Alexander fights to conquer the uh, conquer Asia. And the four heads are going to represent the four kings that come out of that empire because Alexander is going to die prematurely at the age of 33 as a drunk. And uh, he never could handle life. Uh, he was a great military commander, and he had a certain amount of moral of uh, battle courage, but he didn't have the kind of moral courage to really face the issues of life. And so he began to uh, drink more and more as the years went by until it... Uh, destroyed his health, and as, at 33, he got some kind of infection, some kind of bacteria or disease, virus, and because of his weakened physical condition from the alcohol, he died. And the kingdom was given, he, he willed it to the strongest of his generals, and it ended up going to four generals, and those represent the four heads. So we're going to see this winged leopard, four wings and four heads on this leopard, and the leopard in the Bible represents swiftness. Habakkuk uh, 1.8 says, Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen came from, or come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. And there we see that the leopards are known for their swiftness. So the uh, lion is known for his strength and his speed. The uh, bear for his strength and agility, and the leopard not for, so much for his strength, but for his speed. So this represents something about the speed with which the, this empire is going to grow. In chapter 8, verse 5, we're going to learn something new about this uh, third empire. Daniel says there, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole ground without touching the ground. He's flying over the surface. He's moving so fast in his conquest. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And we'll discuss that when we get to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. So we have to look at the history of Greece in order to understand um, what is going on here. And this is all background to Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. In Daniel 8.22, we're told that the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but they won't have the same power. So you have one nation, that's Alexander, and then it's divided into four. And it is what happens in that empire that's crucial. Because those four kings establish what becomes known as the Hellenistic Empire. The, the Greeks govern uh, Asia Minor. They govern, they not, govern not only Greece, but Asia Minor, the whole Syria, uh, uh, Syria, Palestinian area. And the Syrian Empire goes all the way into modern Iraq and Iran. And then the Ptolemies are down in Egypt, and they run the Egyptian Empire. So the whole known world on the what's called the Levant or the eastern end of the Mediterranean is dominated by Greeks. And that sets up a universal culture that will provide the perfect situation for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, they're going to bring together the language known as Koine Greek, which is the com common Greek language, plus a, an infrastructure that makes it possible later under the Roman Empire for the gospel to be spread. But the Roman Empire just moved into, once they conquered Greece, they gained control of all of the uh, eastern half of the empire. But the foundation for it, I mean the infrastructure, is really laid by these four generals who take over Alexander's empire. That's why this is so important. So this gives us kind of an overview and this is a picture of Alexand a map on the, of Alexander's conquest. So we'll run through a brief overview of the history of uh, the uh, Greek Empire. In uh, the middle fourth century, there, the king of Macedon, Macedon is, Macedonia, is located here just on the left edge of your screen. It's in the hill and mountainous country to the north of Greece. Uh, there was a prince by the name of Philip, Philip of Macedon. He becomes the king of Macedonia, and he has been taken captive by the 
Thebans down in the Greek peninsula. And at this time, Athens has been defeated. Thebes and Sparta are fighting it out for domination of Greek, of Greece. The Spartans were the greatest soldiers. And in Thebes, there arose a man by the name of Epaminondas who emphasized in his teaching patriotism, freedom, and responsibility. And he was a strong leader. And at that time, Thebes was run by an oligarchy, but the people rejected the oligarchy and Epaminondas became the leader of Thebes. He understood military tactics, and he developed a tactic called the Oblique Order of Battle, where he would send the phalanx into into the opposing force, and then they would do an oblique left and hit him from the, from the flank. And at the Battle of Leuctra, they first executed that maneuver, and one of their prisoners that was standing up on a hillside watching the battle was Philip of Macedon. And he got this great idea, and he went home with this idea of developing a phalanx where all of the soldiers had 30-foot pikes. And you have everyone with a 30-foot pike sticking out in front of them, and you have this, it's almost like a rolling human tank coming at you. And as they would pierce an, uh, one opposing force, then they would do a left oblique or a right oblique and then hit from the side. Those pikes would just drive right into the side of the opposing army, and then they would wipe them out. And uh, unfortunately, Philip died uh, at a young age. He was thought to have been assassinated by Olympias, who was the mother of Alexander, because he divorced her for a younger woman, put, set her aside. See, it's an old story. And so the, the, there's often the suspicion that she had him poisoned. And at the age of 20, his son Alexander became the king of Macedon, and he had this great army, and he decided to... Uh, unite the Greeks, which he did. And uh, in the process of raising this army, he needed money, and he went to the Chalcedonian Peninsula, which is located in this area, where they discovered a tremendous amount of gold, and they used that to finance their, their maneuver. So first he united the Greeks, then he crossed over the Hellespont into Asia Minor, and they fought their first major battle with Darius III at Granicus. And at that point, Darius III becomes overwhelmed with mental attitude, sins of fear. And he begins to realize how dangerous, um, how dangerous Alexander could be. He only had a, um, at, at that particular battle, he had, Alexander had 30,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, he had um, a, a ballista, which was like a catapult that could throw a 200-pound rock 300 yards and with deadly accuracy. We still don't know how they did that with the kind of technology they had that, at, at that time in history. Now, we could do it today with modern elastics and rubber and different things like that, but we don't know how they did it with the tools that they had. And he just had, uh, as I said, he just had, he had less than 40,000 men, and he was opposed by 100,000 Persians, and he decisively defeated them. At one point in the battle, the Persians had outflanked him, so Alexander took his cavalry and personally led the charge against the Persians. And when the battle was over, he had only 150 dead and 300 wounded. And Alexander was a genius. He was interested in all kinds of things. He had been trained and tutored by Aristotle when he was a young man. And he was interested in medicine. He was interested in the treatment of wounds. And he went around and personally prescribed for every one of the wounded exactly what their treatment was to be. So he was a fascinating individual. And that introduces a key principle in leadership is that a good leader takes care of his people. He takes care of their needs and watches out for them. And that has great application to husbands, that your responsibility as a leader in the home to take care of the needs of wives and children. That's the first wing of the four wings on the beast, the Battle of Granicus. The second wing is the Battle of Isis. And that takes place just here on the map at the juncture at the northwest corner or northeast corner of the Mediterranean. And there he met Darius III again, this time 
he faces a larger army, a larger Persian army of 800,000, and Alexander has about, about 40,000 men with him, and he just drives his phalanxes right into the middle of the army, and then he does a left and a right oblique and hits them from both sides, splits them apart, and... Uh, that was the second major defeat of the Persians, and by this time, Darius is almost insane with fear because he doesn't know how to stop Alexander. Alexander then moved south to Tyre, and there's a fascinating, we don't have time to look at it, but there's a fascinating prophecy given by uh, Ezekiel about how Tyre is going to be destroyed and what happened in order to avoid Alexander, the Tyrians had, uh, there was an island a lot like Houston is to Galveston, or Galveston is to Houston, and they moved out on the island to avoid the siege and to survive the siege from Alexander. Well, Alexander just leveled the city and used all the rubble from their buildings and everything and pushed it all out in the water and used that to build a causeway. Well, Ezekiel's prophecy was that the land would be scraped clean and nothing would be left of Tyre. It would be completely destroyed with, uh, with no remains, and that's exactly what happened. So God used Alexander to fulfill that prophecy in destroying the uh, town of Tyre. Well, he headed south, and he conquered through Egypt, and, I mean through Israel, and the high priest brought him copies of uh, Daniel's prophecies here in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8, showing that Alexander had been prophesied by God. And so Alexander, he never became a believer, but he did honor the high priest and the God who the high priest served in Jerusalem. He went down and conquered Egypt, and then he headed back towards, um, towards Persia. And at the Battle of Arbella, north of Babylon, he finally and decisively defeated the, the Persians. That is the third wing. It is at the Battle of Arbella where he defeats an army of over a million Persians, the largest army they ever assembled. And uh, at that point, Darius became a fugitive until his followers finally assassinated him, and that was the end of the Achaemenid dynasty. And then the fourth wing is his defeat of the uh, of, and his conquest of India in the west. He headed north into Sogdiana, where he married a Sogdianan princess, and Bakhtra, which is all up in the Hindu Kush, and north, northwest frontier or northeast frontier of Afghanistan, which is what we've all seen pictures of recently. So we see, know how rugged an army that is. And notice, we'll follow the line here. He heads up from the south across the Hindu Kush, goes up into, this is the um, area of the, that we call also the Himalayas. And he goes up into Sogdian and he comes back with his major army and crosses the Hindu Kush again. Nobody else has ever done that once in history, and he did it twice. Then he headed down to the Indian River, Indus River, headed south, and then when they hit the Indian Ocean, they decided to build a navy, so they took out a couple of months and built a navy, and part of his army headed back along the coast. The other part came along the uh, coast on the waters mapping all of the ports and all of the coves and inlets. And uh, that information was sent back to Aristotle. And unfortunately, most of that information has been lost to history. problem was Alexander went back to Babylon where he became entranced with the oriental culture of the Persians. And so he began this great idea that he was going to merge East and Western cultures. He was multicultural. And uh, God stopped it. You see, what had happened back earlier with Xerxes and Darius, I mean, with uh, Xerxes invading the, East, the West... God halted the invasion of the East into the West. He stopped that, as he did later on in the 1400s with the invasion of the Muslims when they invaded and laid siege to Vienna. God has always protected Western Europe, and I think he always will because there has to be a Western European culture that is distinct from the Arabic culture, and that goes back to the prophecy of Noah, the prophecy regarding his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Europeans are the Japhethites, 
and Arabs are either Shemites uh, and, of course, the Egyptians are Hamites. But there is going to be this distinction. We have to understand all of these biblical, all these people today in terms of their biblical roots in the prophecies of Noah and other earlier prophecies. So God has always protected Western Europe from the invasion of the East. Well, the West invaded the East with Alexander, but after he got there, he decided he wanted to merge the two, and his generals and those under him were extremely dissatisfied. They didn't like the fact that he dressed like an Oriental potentate. They didn't like the fact that he had taken a Sogdian and princess for a wife. They didn't like the fact that he was... Uh, taking over all of the practices of the Orientals and that um, he was going to wanted to be worshipped as a god and become deified. And so he had an internal revolt on his hands. And uh, as he was pushing to merge Eastern and Western culture, God stepped in in the sovereignty of God and took his life in 30, when he was 33 years of age. And that caused a breakup of the kingdom. Now, here's a map showing the breakup of the kingdom into the four heads. Over here is Macedonia and Greece. Here is Thrace. Here is Asia Minor and the two major kingdoms of Phrygia and Cappadocia. And then here is uh, the Persian Empire going across Iraq, Iran, and uh, modern Afghanistan. Down here is the Arabian Peninsula, and over here is Egypt. What happens is it's divided up so that one of his generals, Seleucus, takes the uh, eastern part of the empire. Another general, Antagonist, tried to uh, take over Asia Minor, Syria, Mesopotamia, but he is eventually defeated by Seleucus. Ptolemy was the smartest of the bunch, and he headed south and isolated Egypt. And the last of the Ptolemies, remember Ptolemy was a Greek, and the last of the Ptolemies was his great-great-great-granddaughter, who was named Cleopatra. Cleopatra was not an Egyptian. She, I mean, yes, she was not an Egyptian. She was a Greek. And the last of the Ptolemies. Well, the, the civil wars and the struggle for power continued, and it was not until about 280 B.C. that things finally uh, leveled out. And one of the generals, Cassander, took over control of Macedonia and Greek, Greece. Lysimachus took control of Thrace and the western part of Asia Minor, but the central part and southern part, western of Asia Minor, was all part of Syria, and Syria extended from there over into what had been the Persian area, which is modern Iran and Iraq. That eventually broke up. They revolted against the Seleucid dynasty, the Seleucid dynasty, and established the Parthian Empire out here to the east. And then Ptolemy maintained the greatest control and the greatest kingdom for the longest period of time as he controlled Egypt. And yet, what lies right between Syria and Ptolemy? Between Seleucus and Ptolemy, there lies Jerusalem and Israel, and that was always a battlefield. And that, keep this in mind, because it is going to be one of the Seleucids, Antiochus Epiphanes, who becomes a type of the Antichrist, and he's going to go into the Holy of Holies and slaughter a pig on the uh, altar in the Holy of Holies, and that it becomes a picture of what the Antichrist is going to do in the, um, in the Holy of Holies halfway through the uh, tribulation as the abomination of desolation. So you see, without an understanding of this historical background, Without an understanding of this ebb and flow through the Persian period and the Greek period, it's hard, it's going to be difficult to understand what happens in chapters 8, chapters 9, and 10 through 12 in Daniel. But don't worry, we'll repeat this many times so you'll get a good foundation in ancient history. And this is a tremendous illustration of how Jesus Christ controls history. And though kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, God is still in control and he is continuously moving things in the direction he wants them to go to bring about his plan and purposes for mankind. And that's the ultimate point in Daniel related to all of these kingdoms is that God is in control. And when we look around at history today and we see the chaos that's going on in Israel with all of the battles, we see the problems with the terrorists and the battles that are going on in Afghanistan. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. 
Yet as Christians, we can relax because we know God's in control and He is going to bring about His plan and purposes for mankind. And so we can just relax and trust Him and go get on an airplane and enjoy ourselves while everybody else is scared to death because we have the promises of God. So if by chance a terrorist attacks that airplane or tries to use it, and uh, then we'll just be face-to-face with the Lord. So it just goes from good to better. So we can relax. Next week we'll come back and look at the fourth beast, which is the rise of Rome. And then we're going to start getting into some tremendous Christology as, and as we understand the, the picture in the middle part of the chapter of the future kingdom of God. So it gets really good after this. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together to study your word. We thank you for the encouragement that we see as throughout history things have always been had periods of instability, chaos, and warfare. Yet nevertheless, you are in control, working out your plans and your purposes. Father, we pray that you would encourage us with the things that we study tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.